Countrywide on ABC Radio. Ultimately, we have animals in society because they turn food that we can't eat into food that we can. Now when I pick up a carrot, it's not just an ordinary carrot. Countrywide. About 30,000 tonnes a week, something like that. Uh, that doesn't even cover the issue on broadband. Climb down off your ivory tower in Canberra. You've never set foot on a farm. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello and welcome to Countrywide. I'm Eden Henninen. It's great to be with you as we take a look back at what happened in regional Australia this past week. Well, it started with the rollout of the first batch of the COVID-19 vaccination, but many are wondering when the agricultural sector will get its turn. We're obviously frontline workers, really, being part of the supply chain. So we have to work and we have, Australians need us to feed them. So, yeah, how do we navigate that space? There hasn't been any really formal guidance. And later in the program, we'll hear from the Bureau of Meteorology about where this year's La Nina, or heavy rainfall events, are heading. What parts of the country will be affected? Now it's starting to decay, but we will still see some influence on our region, particularly in the rainfall. We are still expecting uh, above average rainfall for eastern parts of Australia and some northern parts. Uh, including those parts of Queensland that are yet to see some significant rainfall. We'll hear more about that shortly. But first, you may have seen footage of Australians lining up to receive the first batch of COVID-19 vaccines at the start of the week. But how will this vaccination program be rolled out in the agricultural sector? Abattoir employees will be eligible to get the vaccine in Stage 1B down the track, but Catherine Valisha, who runs a vegetable farming and packing operation in Werribee near Melbourne, says farm business employers need more information about how the vaccine will be rolled out. Our biggest concerns, um, particularly running a farming business and a packing business, is that there isn't really any formal guidance about what we do with our employees and how we manage the space around, I guess, people who may choose not to be vaccinated or having that blended workforce. So can you tell us a little bit about the size of your workforce and why this is such a concern for you? We have our main packing facility in Werribee South, which has about 25 to 30 employees at any one time. And then we obviously have different farms around the area, all with similar 20 to 30, sometimes 50 people workforces. And I guess our biggest concern is that some people may choose to be vaccinated or or maybe unable to vaccinate for health reasons or whatever the case is. And then as an employer of these people, what do we do with people who are vaccinated, who aren't vaccinated? What are our rights? Do we run two workforces? Are we able to maybe make it compulsory for vaccination? We're obviously frontline workers really being part of the supply chain. So we have to work and we have, Australians need us to feed them. So, yeah, how do we navigate that space? There hasn't been any really formal guidance. And, and where does the onus lie? Is it going to be a law or is it going to be a legislation that government make or is it going to fall on each employer and, and the, I guess, their needs of their businesses and their people? The rollout of the vaccine, uh, the, the very initial stages, are meant to start very soon. Are you surprised that you haven't heard more information from either the federal or state government about your responsibilities as an employer? Yeah, really uh, surprised. Uh, I guess there is a lot going on at the moment and obviously there's different priorities and things like that. But it, it is something that definitely, I guess, thinking of it from a, from our industry, but all industries, we definitely believe it's, it's, it's a pressing um, a pressing topic and we'd definitely like some, some guidance on that from 
the politicians. Yeah, we're, it's it's quite it's yeah, it's a bit of a we're in a bit of a grey no man's land area at the moment. So yeah, it's a bit concerning. Do you think that there's any possible situation where if a COVID-19 outbreak did happen in one of your facilities that you might be liable for that as an employer if people decide not to get vaccinated? Well, yeah, as, as, as the way it stands now, we would definitely be because are we fulfilling our need to make sure that the workplace is as free and as safe as possible for people from injury? So, yeah, it's definitely, that's our health and safety obligation as an employer. So, where do we sit and, and where are our rights with that? And, yeah, so it's definitely, it is a really, it's a big concern. Obviously, that's why we're speaking about it. We're, you know, we're wanting some guidance on this. And do you think that it should be mandatory in certain workplaces outside of the health profession? It's a, it's a very difficult one because uh, I, I will myself probably get vaccinated. I don't have any real um, worries, I guess. Oh, I have worries, but, you know, like I'll be doing that. I, I would... If I was advising people, I would advise them to get vaccinated. But I don't really know if that that is the right of the employer to do because it's taking a lot of personal choice away from people. But it is definitely, again, like I said, you never want to do anything wrong by individuals, but you do have to protect the whole. So I guess it probably is a call that we would have to make, yeah. Corporate lawyer Neil Salvador says the Victorian Occupational Health and Safety Act is ill-equipped to give clear direction to employers on their responsibilities regarding vaccination and that the legislation needs to be reviewed. He says business owners like Catherine have plausible concerns about the potential for legal action to be taken if a COVID-19 outbreak occurs and some employees have refused to get the jab. Well, that's, that's exactly right because, as Catherine has said, as a business owner... What else could Catherine or the business have done to avoid it that have taken place? And it could well be as simple as ensuring it becomes a mandatory obligation that every worker will need to be vaccinated. If we go through that risk assessment methodology, it could well be in some businesses that, that they're able to social distance, they're able to keep workplace bubbles in place. But that, that may not be practical at all. There may be occasions where that's difficult to do and therefore we need to think about whether or not mandatory vaccinations might assist with alleviating some of that risk. Corporate lawyer at NS8 Group Neil Salvador ending that story from Jane McNaughton. Moving now to an issue I'm sure you've heard a lot about over the past year. Winemakers are coming to terms with the loss of trade with China after it placed massive tariffs on bottled Australian wine last year. Some winemakers have considered selling bulk wine into China in bladders for bottling in the overseas market as a way to get around the tariffs. But Australian grape and wine boss Tony Badaline says the risks are great and he believes it's unlikely to ever happen. Cass Sullivan caught up with him and asked how the industry is coping. Uh, Clearly, we don't want to be where we are now. The investigations... Uh, we'll continue. We're expecting a final determination any time on from April to August. Uh, we have no expectations that that will be positive. Uh, we have seen no lessening of the political tensions between our countries. Uh, when I met with uh, Minister for Trade, Dan Tian, earlier, he said he still hasn't got a response from his counterpart in China. Uh, we don't think that we'll get any solution to that problem until China want to come to the table and talk to us. So we're encouraging it. Uh, we believe we've got a lot we can do together, uh, but it's going to be tough. And we think essentially we're telling people plan for that China market to be closed for four to five years. The tariffs as they stand at the moment only apply to bottled wine. 
is there potential to sell more um, bulk wine, that is wine in bladders, into into China? Bulk wine is a relatively small component of our export mix into China at the moment. Uh, and there's a reason for that. One is that when you export bulk and you have to package it in market, you have to control the quality. So you need to have very good manufacturing sites and very good quality control. With the inability of our producers to get over there and have that oversight, uh, you lose control there. The other thing is that when you're packaging in market, you run the chance of fraud and IP theft. When your bottles, your capsules, your labels are all in market, it does increase the chance of the intellectual property threat, counterfeit, and indeed copycat products. So uh, there is potential for some increase, but we don't believe it's going to be a major. Well, I was going to ask you about that because I've heard that winemakers have been considering this as a potential way around the tariffs. Do you know of anybody who who's having a crack at that? Uh, I don't know of anyone having a crack at it at the moment. Certainly people have been doing the numbers and looking at it, but I can tell you from the people I've talked to, they've all come down to they won't be able to control the, the quality uh, and quality control is so important for Brand Australia and indeed individual brands that you need to make sure your product is the best on the market. But we do do it into other markets like the UK. Oh, absolutely. So the United Kingdom uh, is a good example where probably 70 to 80% of our product exported there is in bulk. Uh, it's then packaged on site, but under the direct control of the producers in Australia. So we know the quality of the product. Uh, it's a sustainable way of doing it. It's cheaper. You're not paying for bottles to go all the way over. So you're you're saving cost and you're also saving the environment. So it's a very it's a very good mechanism because you can keep your quality. But again, they are controlling the quality at the other end. Uh, it wasn't just the tariffs that held up the Australian wine trade to China last year. At the same time that they were being announced, we also saw an unofficial sort of customs ban. It held up timber, lobsters, a number of commodities at the border. Has any wine been able to make its way through to, to the marketplace in China since that time? Yeah, it's a really good question. So the unofficial ban, I think, was announced about the 6th of November and it came into effect a little bit before that. Uh, we have saw, saw a rapid... Rapid is probably not the right word. We saw a, a, a marked decline in the speed of clearance of customs. We know of product that has gone in, that went into customs in October last year that have only just been cleared through. So those border disruptions continue. Uh, slow customs clearances and the like, they're still, for our industry, alive and well. So um, that is causing another problem for those people exporting bulk wine. Tony Badaline is the Chief Executive at Australian Grape and Wine. He's speaking there with Cass Sullivan. What do you enjoy eating with your wine? A bit of seafood? Well, an independent advisory group is looking at the biosecurity risks posed by imported raw prawns. After Federal Agriculture Minister David Littleproud challenged his own department to prove they've got the science right. Prawn farmers and a leading aquatic diseases expert have all warned the government that imported prawns need to be cooked to stop more deadly white spot or other aquatic diseases from entering the country. Jennifer Nichols asked the minister why he believed the independent advisory group was needed. I want to have confidence, and I know the industry want to have confidence, that what the Department of Agriculture is doing in reviewing its its protocols for, for prawn imports and seafood imports is, is appropriate. It's tested. Um, we've had an incursion. Uh, they are not beyond reproach, the department, and that's why I want to give myself the comfort, and I think the industry deserves it, to have preeminent 
experts, scientific and technical experts, to come together and, and effectively check the department's homework. In the government's draft review of biosecurity risks posed by imported raw prawns, the government's scientists haven't recommended cooking raw prawns, but high-risk raw pork, poultry and beef isn't allowed into Australia because of the risk of introducing disease. Why should prawns be treated any differently? Well, that's what I want to get tested. I'm concerned by that and I just want to get an appreciation of how the department got to that assessment. Uh, I think it's it's only right that we do. We've got to put our hand up. They they made a blue and, and we've had an incursion. Uh, and my job is to make sure that they're doing the regulatory piece right. Uh, and I don't have that confidence at the moment. And that's why I, I want to get that by bringing in an expert panel that can exactly answer that question. And I think that's a simple question that the, depart- that the industry uh, simply want answered as well. And they want to have confidence in, in who's made that uh, and how we get to the, to the juncture of making sure that we protect this industry into the future. How quickly will this independent advisory group be formed and how soon would you like the review to be finalised? Uh, it has already been formed uh, and it will in fact report back late April. So this isn't something that, that will take a long period of time. It's simply about making sure that we can get these technical experts together. Uh, and there's Joanne Daly, Steve McCutcheon and Will Zacharin uh, will come and do this for us. So the, a lot of the work has been done. This is just really getting under the bonnet of the work in which the department's done to ensure uh, that we can have confidence that they've done it properly. Independent scientist Dr Ben Diggles, who advises the prawn farming industry, has said that it's just a few prawns out of every shipment that get checked. So there's so much risk of disease coming in at the moment. What's being done about that? Well, you've got to understand um, only a small percentage of whether it's prawn or any product that's imported, whether it be agricultural or not, brought into this country is tested. You simply cannot physically test every piece um, that that is something you cannot undertake. So what what biosecurity works on is risk assessments and risk assessments are predicated uh, around intelligence. So we garner intelligence from around the world of where where threats are uh, that could emanate if we would bring product not only just agricultural uh, agricultural product but all our inputs. And then obviously we focus our resources in on that. Federal Agriculture Minister David Littleproud speaking there with Jennifer Nichols. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Now to a story on another food favourite, stone fruit. This week, fruit fly has been detected in nectarines and peaches on South Australian supermarket shelves transported in from Victoria. Summer Fruit Australia's CEO, Trevor Ranford, says fruit was picked up by consumers at Aldi, Coles, Woolworths and a local farmer's market who reported seeing larvae crawling inside. There's been an urgent recall on all infected fruit and it's been sent back to the Victorian growers. Mr Ranford says this shouldn't be considered an outbreak, but rather a failure on the two states' biosecurity systems. Uh, Why this might have happened, uh, one really doesn't know at the present moment, but uh, what is happening is that uh, primary industries and regions in South Australia is working with uh, Agriculture Victoria and no doubt uh, working with the the grower or growers involved to uh, see uh, why there was a situation of finding larvae in fruit. So we don't have the answers at this point in time, but uh, obviously uh, there's been 
potentially a uh, a failure uh, in the system somewhere and uh, uh, you know, fortunately, it's been picked up uh, uh, by uh, uh, the uh, consumers in uh, South Australia and reported. Uh, and given that fruit fly is very much um, uh, in the news uh, within South Australia at the present moment uh, because of other outbreaks, uh, the consumers here are, uh, are very vigilant. But you know, I do do know that you know Victoria uh, and growers have been struggling uh, with uh, outbreaks of uh, fruit fly as well and. Obviously, the environmental conditions uh, of this season with a, a wet winter and, uh, uh, you know, reasonably good uh, summer that uh, population uh, have increased and uh, you know, industry, uh, along with the consumer, along with the government, uh, you know, need to be vigilant and we need to be um, uh, putting more effort into uh, the management uh, and control in, in all regions around, the, around Australia. As you just said, South Australia is already battling problems with fruit fly. How serious then is this incident for them? You know, it's a larvae found in fruit. It's not considered as an outbreak, but it's, uh, you know, what is concerning is the fact that uh, uh, you know, uh, one assumes the fruit has come in under an ICA arrangement and therefore there's been a failing of that, uh, that process and we need to... Uh, you know, uh, understand what that uh, failing is and uh, deal with it, make sure that uh, it uh, doesn't happen in the future. So, you know, it's a, I suppose it's a wake-up call in a sense as to say, well, you know, we've got these arrangements in place, but uh, sometimes they fail. Uh, and why do they fail? And that's, uh, you know, we'll be, we'll be uh, looking forward to, uh, you know, the responses by both uh, the South Australian and the uh, Victorian uh, departments as to what they find as to the reason uh, for uh, you know, the failure in the in the protocols. Have you spoken to the the Victorian grower that sent this fruit across? Uh, no, I haven't uh, at this point in time. Uh, and you said that the fruit has been returned back to Victoria. Will those supermarkets be taking more Victorian stone fruit now? Oh, I, I'm sure sure they will. Uh, again, it's. Uh, uh, you know, and uh, you know, it, uh, it depends on the situation with the, with the grower uh, or growers involved. But uh, you know, it won't it won't stop trade. It'll just mean that uh, uh, we will be more vigilant, uh, or the departments uh, will be more vigilant in uh, ensuring that you know, the, the relevant ICA arrangements uh, that are in place are being uh, uh, accurately uh, put in place and accurately monitored by both uh, the Victorian and the South Australian Department. You know, while, while we found this uh, you know, outbreak, uh, it really isn't, uh, uh, you know, it shouldn't stop our consumers, whether they be in South Australia or Victoria, you know, buying fresh fruit and vegetables. So, uh, you know, it's important that we, uh, uh, you know, take it for what it is, and that is, uh, you know, uh, a failure potentially a failure in, in a process, uh, uh, not, a, not a failure in the, the, uh, the quality of uh, overall quality of the fruit that's being produced uh, uh, either in Victoria or in South Australia. Summer Fruit Australia CEO Trevor Ranford speaking there. Well, in a statement, Agriculture Victoria says it has seen an increase in insect activity in Victoria, possibly due to the warm and wet La Nina weather events. It says Agriculture Victoria and primary industries and regions South Australia are working together to resolve this matter. 
Well, on this program, we've spoken a lot about labour shortages and the shape of its workforce. Well, this week, a group of unions have lobbied on Parliament House in Canberra, calling for a Royal Commission into Australia's horticulture industry. Cass Sullivan asked AWU Secretary Dan Walton how a Royal Commission would differ from various state inquiries into worker exploitation. What has changed with any of these inquiries that have happened to date? None of them have had the real powers, the deep powers that the Royal Commission has to finally pull apart all of these problems. We've seen inquiries already take place at a state government level, federal government level, academic level, and what's happening is the exploitation is getting worse. It's not actually getting better. If there is exploitation, that should be reported to the police, reported to the authorities. Is that not happening? Oh, it does happen. But have a look at what happened when the Fair Work Ombudsman investigated a couple of hundred employers. They found that over half of them were um, exploiting workers. They issued improvement notices and fines. They came back and investigated, and the majority of those businesses were still doing exactly the same thing. This is repeat behaviour that's playing out, and Australia's reputation is at risk here. We've got a lot of overseas workers working on our farms, getting exploited. Well, the Agriculture Minister says there's something like 22,000 overseas workers who want to come here and work on our farms. Well, that may be the case. I think our priority, while our borders remain shut, we're not going to have working holiday makers here for some period of time. So we need to find opportunities to get Australians into the agricultural workforce. We think by putting in place, cleaning up the industry, improving its reputation, highlighting the good farmers, putting in place proper paying conditions, will attract Australians back in. You say the good farmers. In, to your mind, what percentage of farmers are doing the right thing? It's very difficult to track. Um, you know, we've had a lot who've taken the time to reach out and highlight some things that we've said that's offended them, and we know that there are some good operators. Like they genuinely want to do the right things. They employ as many locals as they can. They pay people their proper wages and conditions. But what's happening is they are competing against a whole lot of dodgy operators who are undercutting, saving money on wages, and therefore being more competitive. And that's the problem, it's a race to the bottom because they're now having to lower their standards to compete with the dodgy operators. Do you have the support of all of your members on this or are there some concerns that you're shining a light in places unnecessarily? No, I think our members are broadly supportive. What we've seen is when we get the settings right, we can flourish and have really good jobs. Our aquaculture industry down in Tasmania is a beacon of success. If you look in terms of the grain industry, just had a bumper harvest that's gone through, employed thousands of people and gave good opportunities for good wages. We can work with those industries. The sugar industry up in North Queensland, again, we work with the sugar industry every year. There's no problems in those industries. It's where we have those areas, like the fruit and veg industry, where they refuse to work alongside with unions, where they're exploiting workers and temporary and short-term nature employment. That's the worst aspects and what we're seeing across the labour movement. And Dan Walton, we know that uh, there are some people in the farming sector calling for an amnesty for workers who don't have permits to be allowed to come forward without fear of um, retribution. Do you support that idea? I think it's really complex, uh, to be honest. It's an issue that we think will necessarily get the best outcomes if we point blanket uh, put in that approach. We've got a large number of members who are undocumented workers. We know the troubles that they're going through and the difficulties that they're going through and we're trying to work and support with them. Dan Walton is the National Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union. In a statement, the federal government says it does not support a role commission into worker exploitation. And finally this week... 
The Bureau of Meteorology says that we've likely seen the peak of La Nina now and that it will start to tail off in the coming months. A La Nina generally means more rain for eastern and northern Australia and that has been the case for the majority of eastern and northern states in recent months. Nikolai Bauerhart spoke with Dr Naomi Benja from the Bureau of Meteorology who says that there may still be a bit more rain to come. La Nina typically brings above average rainfall for um, eastern and northern parts of Australia and and the northern parts certainly have benefited from that influence and also some eastern parts with the notable exception of uh, southern and eastern parts of uh, Queensland uh, who are still waiting for that rainfall. The Australian rainfall for summer 2021 was above average and it's been the highest since summer of 2016 to 17. Okay, and if so we move forward to the outlook period of what's coming up, uh, I guess still the talk about La Nina. What is happening with the La Nina now and what's likely in coming months? Yeah, well, the La Nina is now in a decaying phase. It's seen its peak early in January and now it's starting to decay, but we will still see some influence on our region, particularly in the rainfall. We are still expecting uh, above-average rainfall for eastern parts of Australia and some northern parts, uh, including those parts of Queensland that are yet to see some significant rainfall. Uh, looking across the country through central into western parts, more neutral outlook, um, uh, no signal towards above or below average uh, rainfall from, for autumn. And so for, you mentioned that the La Nina, it seems that now we've likely seen the peak of it. What's driving the changes behind that? What's, what's pushing the La Nina away a little bit? Uh, The natural life cycle of a La Nina event does tend to come uh, to the end in early autumn. So this is a natural decaying phase for the La Nina. We are still seeing some pretty strong signals in the atmosphere, though. Those winds are still, and the the cloud patterns, are still showing evidence that La Nina is in effect. How are things looking for Queensland? The outlook for Queensland is certainly still benefiting from that influence of La Nina with above average rainfall for mainly eastern parts and some northern parts who have already seen some high levels of rainfall. In central parts, we're also expecting above average rainfall. For the maximum temperatures, northern parts can uh, expect above average maximum temperatures and minimum temperatures are across the state expected to be above average for autumn. And how are things looking for New South Wales? For New South Wales, we'll see the continued influence of La Nina, but particularly the early parts of autumn are expecting above-average rainfall for the northeastern parts. Inland and central parts are expecting uh, more neutral conditions. The maximum temperature is expected to be around average for most of the state, except for some inland parts uh, just west of the ranges where we can expect below-average maximum temperatures. The minimum temperatures are expected to be above average across the state for autumn. And how are things looking for Victoria? The autumn outlook for Victoria shows neutral conditions as far as rainfall is concerned. Maximum temperatures in the south can be expected to be above average and around average elsewhere. The minimum temperature is expected to be above average across the state for autumn. And how are things looking for South Australia? The autumn outlook for South Australia shows generally neutral conditions rainfall, apart from a hint of above average conditions in northern central parts. The maximum temperature is expected to be about average, except for the southern agricultural area where we expect above average maximum temperatures. 
The minimum temperatures for South Australia are expected to be above average in eastern and central parts and more neutral conditions are expected for the overnight temperatures in the west of the state. Dr Naomi Benger from the Bureau of Meteorology. And that's all for this week's episode of Countrywide. I'm Eden Henninen. Thanks for your company. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest rural stories online at abc.net.au forward slash rural. Have a great week. Countrywide on ABC Radio. I'm absolutely calling on the Deputy Prime Minister to pay attention to his own report. Growers work from sun up to sun down, so... Countrywide. We need to speak to these growers one o'clock in the morning. And to actually act on behalf of the farmers. We're going to get it from the Yanks or the French or whoever. So let's get our foot in the door and let's be the first. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio.